Morning, everybody. Morning. Morning, everyone watching. Um, I have to take three seconds. I have to take three seconds after I get up here for the sake of the recording before I speak. So, pardon me for that. Um, hope you all are well. Hope everyone watching and listening are well, watching today and in the days and the weeks to come. Um, Kim, Dan, if you're listening, if you're watching, I think you are. Odie is just fine. We left him chasing toys around the house. He's settling in. He's having a good time. We get to babysit Kim and Dan's kitty cat, Odie. So we're having a fun time with him while they're away. Please, rem um, again, pray for Jean. Um, they're not sure when she's going to be released from physical therapy there at Dorothy Love, but I, I believe some cousins are going to stay with her when she's able to to go back home and get in the house. You look great. Thank you. All going well? Good, good, good. And of course, uh, Charles made mention of the new baby that Kevin and uh, Hannah have. They're well on their way to being real parents of three children, as Warren says. Um, <clears throat> before we proceed into the text, of course, as you've observed this morning, it is time for communion for the Lord's Supper. I trust everyone's mind and heart is prepared to come to the Lord's table to commemorate His sacrifice on our behalf and to look forward to when we are gathered at the table of our Father in the kingdom in the future. So I hope and trust everyone is prepared for this very important event in the life of the church. And we miss Suzanne. Please tell her we love her and we'll be praying for her back when, when you get home. This morning I'd like to bring to your attention by way of the Global Prayer Guide from Voice of the Martyrs, as is our custom for some months now, I believe we began back in the late winter, early spring. This is a country that you're probably not very familiar with. It's a very obscure place. It's called Maldives. And it is referred to as Maldives or the Maldives uh, because of uh, the Maldives or Maldives is, is a very small series of islands off the southwest coast of, of India. So it's a very obscure little country. I, some of you may not have even heard of this place. But this is the nation I'd like to bring to your attention today. Focus your prayers on these folks. Maldives is restricted, designated a restricted nation. It's pretty severe, uh, according to Voice of the Martyrs, the, the persecution against Christians there. The Maldives is one of the most restricted nations in the world, with fewer than 10 known believers there. Any Maldivian who follows Christ must remain secret or face arrest or even expulsion from the country. After having the same leader for more than 30 years, the Maldives is, considered, is considering democratic reforms. We'll see how that goes. The elected president resigned in 2012 under very heavy pressure. The Maldivian government seeks to eliminate or greatly minimize outside influences on their cultural identity. While tourism is a major source of income, and they're going to have a hard time with that. How do you keep outside influences out while you're trying to make money by tourism? How that's going to work out, I don't know. While tourism is a major source of income, tourists are actually confined to certain resorts in an attempt to protect the small population from any or all outside influence. Almost sounds like North Korea. Sunni Islam is a defining characteristic there, and all Maldivians are required 
to be Muslim. The government is the main persecutor with some family persecution. Christians must, must worship there in secret. They gather in homes, some placing pillows against door thresholds and windows so no one on the outside can hear them. Some Maldivians and other Christians living outside the country share the gospel with those inside the country in various ways. The oppressive anti-Christian environment makes the Maldives one of the world's most challenging regions in the world for Christian work. It is illegal to import Bibles there, but some Maldivians access the scriptures through Bible apps or the internet. Technology is the answer. Translation of the Bible into Devehi. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. The main language of the Maldives is ongoing, but the work has been difficult and slow because of the small number of Christian converts there. Voice of the Martyrs uses creative secretive methods, secretive methods to share the gospel inside the Maldives. Voice of the Martyrs also supports outreach to Maldivians in India and are assisting in the recording of God's word in the national language. So these folks most definitely need our prayers, as there are, what, only 10 or more known believers in the entire country. So we need to pray, obviously, for their safety and their well-being and for any, their efforts and anyone's efforts to actually spread the gospel of Christ in a country where it is certainly illegal to do so. Um, they mentioned India. I'll go ahead and mention India as well. We've mentioned India probably months ago now. But there is rising persecution in India because of the rise of militant Hinduism uh, there. So, and it's, uh, it's going to make things awkward with India's uh, relations with Western Europe, and particularly the United States. So pray, pray for believers in India. It's, it's, it's becoming pretty violent there. And remember the, these folks in the Maldives, these, these little islands, they most definitely need our prayers. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this fine autumn day, welcoming us into October. We pray for a little more rain. Thank you for the rain that we've received. Thank you for this time. Customarily, we come together as a church family on the first of the month. Perhaps we should do so a little more to come to your table, the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, the table of the new covenant, which commemorates the sacrifice of God the Son in our behalf, and which points to the marriage supper of the Lamb, according to the Apostle John, the great event in the future in which all believers of all ages will be gathered into the kingdom to take their place at the table of our Father in the eternal kingdom which knows no end. Thank you for what this table represents. I pray for the souls of everyone here and everyone watching that our souls are well and happy in you. Bless us as we come to this table at the conclusion of this service. May your Holy Spirit be here in great power to bless the minds and hearts and souls of all who are partaking of your table this day. Open the minds and hearts of everyone who is listening and watching today. Bless them wherever they are. Protect them wherever they are. Reveal yourself to them in whatever situations or circumstances they may find themselves in. Thank you for hearing our prayers on their behalf, many of them. Open all of our minds and hearts to receive the truth of your word, Paul's prayer for Ephesian believers and all believers which we begin today. And inspire all of us by his modeled prayer to pray these same things for one another and even ourselves. I pray for Claudia and her health and her healing. I pray for Hannah and Kevin 
and their little baby, Caitlin. I pray for Suzanne and for her back problems. I pray for David and his hearing. I pray for Shelly and her little incident this morning that she doesn't have an allergic reaction or anything like that. I pray for Kim and Dan traveling to Colorado. I pray for Bill and Leanne in Virginia and their situations and circumstances. And please forgive me if I'm forgetting anyone or any prayer request. We lay all of these persons in these matters at your feet, O sovereign God. Work your perfect plan and will in their life, over their life, for their life, through their life. And for everyone who is gathered here and for everyone who is watching. May these words give us life that we're studying today and inspire and inform everything that we do in this pilgrimage, this side of eternity, on our way to our eternal home. I repeat Warren's prayer for our President and our First Lady. Heal them of this illness. Get them back to work and to their normal routine. I know the President is working from his offices in that hospital. Please convince him to rest a little. Although I know he is handling matters of grave importance. Please heal him, fill him with your spirit, he and his wife, their family. I pray salvation for all of these people, for their families, for every member of the administration, for every member of the cabinet, and for their fight against evil and their fight to preserve this nation. And help us to follow along in their footsteps, to support them and do our duty by King Jesus and our country in any way that we are called upon to do. Help us in these times that we are facing and help us to have the courage and bravery to do the right thing whatever is required of us come what may in the future and may the gospel of Jesus Christ remain free in this country to thrive and to be sent throughout the world because the world is counting on us in so many ways don't give us a moment's peace until we are doing our duty to not let one another down here and to not let everyone down who is depending on us about this world and about this country. And may the perfect will of King Jesus be perfectly accomplished. We know this will happen because it's all part of a plan, according to Paul, devised in your mind, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before you spoke the universe into being. There is our hope. There is our comfort. There is our assurance. There is our confidence. We thank you for creating us, making us, and saving us to be a part of this divine plan, which is being divinely sustained and maintained, and which will be perfectly concluded to the last dot of the last eye at the perfect time in the future when the divine Son returns to judge all evil and to restore his universe to its original state and better yet, so as King David would write, May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord our God, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and honor the reading of the word of the Lord, proceeding on through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus and his letter to us by association and extension, as these are the words of the Lord. Today, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 19, uh, let me be a little more specific, the first half of verse 19. We'll read uh, Ephesians 1, 15 to 
19a, or the first half of verse 19. That's what we're going to explore this morning. And this is, I hope you notice as we're reading, this is a prayer. First he gave us a benediction, verses 3 to 14, and now as a result of that benediction and getting good news from these folks in Ephesus, he launches into a prayer. Mark this, because this is a model prayer that we're to follow. If you want to know how to pray for other believers, follow Paul's example. Pray this prayer. We won't finish it this week. We'll finish it next week, but we'll certainly get to through half of it or more today. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists amongst you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while, mentioning, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance of his saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Thank you. So this passage, commonly called Paul's uh, prayer of praise and thanksgiving, verses 15 to 23. It's a natural result. It's a natural outgrowth of Paul's benediction, as I just mentioned a moment before, from verses 3 to 14. Now, this passage beginning here in verse 15 extends all the way through uh, 23. It's prayer. Read it carefully. It's a prayer. Paul is telling the Ephesians and us, of course, how he prays for them how he prays for other believers, what he prays for in their behalf. So, whenever you have a model prayer given by Christ in the New Testament or any of the inspired apostles in the New Testament, we are to follow in their footsteps. They are our model. We emulate them. Model and emulate their behavior. Here you are, folks. This is a beautiful, wonderful, inspired prayer. As Paul prays for the Ephesian believers, and, of course, by association and extension, as this is sacred scripture for all believers, he prayed the same thing for you and I who would come millennia later. And this is how we should pray for all other believers ourselves. In fact, I believe if you uh, want to pray this prayer for yourself, go right ahead. Pray this prayer for yourself and for every other believer that you know. Now, this prayer, verse 15 to 23, it's, it's very similar in structure and style in the original language to verses 3 and 14, the benediction that we just studied, in this way. In the original Greek, it is one long sentence. So when the versification of the scripture began in the 16th century, it was hard for translators to break this up into verses. And it's even harder for Bible teachers, such as yours truly, to try to break this text down into nice, neat sections to teach on Sunday mornings, so please pardon me if I begin and end right in the middle of verses sometimes. I'm trying to just follow Paul's thought from the original language. It's about 169 words in the original language, one very long, one round sentence again. And Paul is praying that the Ephesian believers, all believers again, will gain very, very deep insight, the deepest insights that can be had, true wisdom, true knowledge, 
As a matter of fact, Holy Spirit given or inspired knowledge, transcendent knowledge and understanding and insight into God's powerful working in our lives and through our lives, enacting the divine plan in and over and through our lives. And all of the rich gifts that are to be had for believers by having a relationship with Christ God the Son, God the Redeemer. Now, we won't get there till next week, but many Bible scholars believe, some early church historians believe, that in verses 20 to 23, when we get there, that this may have been actually part of a hymn or a song, as it is slightly heightened language in the original Greek, it's structured in a way that suggests perhaps a song or a poem that may have been part of an inspired creed or liturgy in the early church. We're not certain, but it may be so. Verse 15 again, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all of the saints. So again, this section tells us, Paul tells us, how he constantly prays for these Ephesian believers. He probably prays something very similar for all believers. And what he prays for when he prays for them. This prayer is teaching truth to us. And this is again instructive as to how we should pray for other believers. Let me give you something of a summary from Clinton Arnold from his commentary. In this prayer of thanksgiving and intercession, Paul expresses gratitude to God upon hearing of the spiritual vitality of the readers, the recipients of the letter, the people he's writing to. This leads him to pray intensively that God the Holy Spirit will reveal to them their hope and their great value to God, and especially that they will gain an expanded knowledge of the extraordinary and unsurpassed power of God manifested on their behalf. End quote. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your hope for all the saints. You could translate this as, for this reason ever since I heard of your faith, or the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love. Yes, that's agape love. The Apostle John would approve of that. Your agape love for all of the saints. So that is to say, because of the truth proclaimed and taught in the benediction, which we concluded last week, verses 3 to 14, because of the truth proclaimed and taught there, in light of that truth, and because Paul has received a good glowing report of the Ephesians' spiritual growth and progress, their personal life of faith in Christ, and because they are living a life of exercising agape love amongst themselves, agape love, the highest, noblest, truest form of love, love which is a gift of God, the love that the Apostle John proclaimed throughout his three letters that we just studied, Paul is inspired to do what? He's inspired to offer thanks to God and share with these people what he prays for them, how he prays for them. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. What's an obvious application there? I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Do not cease praying for other believers. We are to emulate the Apostle's behavior. He's telling us, I pray for you people habitually, constantly, all of the time. I am specifically mentioning you before God and thanking God for you, what He is doing in your life. That is precisely what you and I are to be doing. How's that coming along? Are we praying this way for other believers all of the time as a fact of business, as a habitual way 
of life. Do not cease praying for others. Constantly mention other believers in your prayers. Here is the importance of intercessory prayer. Prayer on behalf of others in the life of the believer. Perfect example. Also, these prayers are to be specific. They're to be intentional. They're not to be generic. They're to be personal, not general. Notice he says, I give thanks for you. I make mention of you. Paul spent, what, about three years in Ephesus? Ephesus, about ten years before he wrote this letter. Some of these people he does personally know. Some of them he does not. But he's getting as specific as he possibly can. That's what our prayers are to be, too. I make mention of you. Be specific in your prayers. Personal, if at all able and possible. The word he uses there for prayers is prosuke. It's the most um, favored or oft-used Koine Greek word for prayer in the New Testament. It's used 36 times as a noun and 85 times as a verb. And prosuke means, yes, an entreaty to God, conversation to God, making a request to God, making an entreaty to God. However, in the same breath, I should say it's an act of worship because the word prosuke is related to the word proskuneo, and both words mean worship. Prosuke means this, a prayer or an entreaty to God that is in and of itself an act of worship. Prayer isn't just a grocery list. Prayer is worship. Even if you are asking Him for something in someone else's behalf, Prayer is in and of itself to be an act of worship. That's what he's saying here by using this particular word. Now, verse 17. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, praying what? That, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and of knowledge of Him. So now Paul actually enters into this prayer telling us how he habitually prays for the Ephesian believers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory... Let's stop right there and unpack carefully what he is saying to us. We're not going to barrel right over what he says about God the Father and God the Son, the two who are one in the same breath. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, the God who is the God of God the Son, who is the eternal Father of glory, the glorious Father. You notice what he's saying there? He's giving you the doctrine of the Trinity here. He does not mention, he does not mention the Spirit right here, but he will. We have Father, Son, and Spirit, all three members of the Trinity, in this passage. And he begins here with the Trinity in mentioning the Father and the Son. And the Father and the Son are mentioned in the same sentence, in the same breath, meaning the two who are one, the triune being of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Three distinct persons, one essence, one nature, one being. God the Father, God the Son. And he's also teaching you the full humanity and the full deity of God the Son. When he says, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is kurios. We've had this before or Adonai in the ancient Hebrew, absolute, sovereign, divine, Lord and Master. He is saying the Son is the same as the Father, absolute, divine, Master. When he says Jesus, yes, he means Jesus of Nazareth, the man Jesus, 
who not only was divine, but was perfectly human. This is Jesus' humanity. Also, he says, the Lord, who is Jesus, who is the Christ. Messiah, in the Hebrew, the Messiah, Christos, anointed one in the Greek. The Lord, the second person of the triune God, one with the Father, is also Jesus of Nazareth, the man Jesus, who was also and is also the Christ, the ancient prophesied Jewish Messiah. So he is teaching not only the doctrine of Trinity, but he is teaching the two natures of the one person of Christ, God the Son. Heavy weather here as far as theology is concerned. Deep water. By the way, when he says that God the Father is the Father of Jesus of Nazareth, some say that's denying the Trinity. Absolutely not. Not in any way, shape, or form. God the Father is not the Father of the Lord Jesus as He is our spiritual Father. This is not in any way denying Jesus' full divinity. This statement actually is stressing His full humanity as well as His deity. That's because oftentimes in the first century A.D., the apostles had to defend the full humanity of Jesus and not just His deity. It sounds about odd. Uh, it sounds a bit odd to, to those of us in the 21st century. The great battle of our time is defending the full divinity of Jesus as well as his full humanity. But in the first century A.D., often pagan folks to whom they were preaching the gospel to, they had no problem. Some of them believing that Jesus was a divine visitation, but they had a problem believing that he was actually a real flesh and blood human being at the same time. So Paul is defending Jesus' humanity as well as his deity. We have to do the same thing. But we have to focus more on his deity than merely defending his full humanity. So what you have is, the Christ is one with the Father, He is divine, and He was genuinely human. The doctrine of the Incarnation here. One of the great, deepest mysteries that we'll be confronted with. Paul mentions the Father and the Son, again together in the same breath, they are one. And as Paul states, Paul states that God, being the Father of the Lord Jesus, in His humanity as well as His deity, now, let me make mention of this. Some of you may be going, well, why? Okay, I get it that he might have to defend his full humanity. Let me be a little more specific. The full humanity of Jesus is stated here for two, two reasons primarily. One, this teaches that Jesus is or presents Jesus as the exclusive, ultimate, human, divine mediator between God and humanity. That's very important. Jesus is the ultimate mediator between God and human beings. He is the ultimate and He is the only true mediator between God and humanity. Christ is the only way to the Father. As Jesus Himself stated in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by way of or through me. The second reason is, remember the first century A.D. Paul is preaching the gospel and defending Christian truth to pagans. Pagans then, pagans now. And the pagans thought in the first century A.D. in particular, in fact, pagans in Ephesus in particular, uh, they taught that pagan, certain pagan gods and goddesses would sometimes appear to human beings in the disguise of humanity the guise of humanity, but they were not actually human. They only appeared in human form as some sort of a ghost or a vision or a wraith. 
It was not a real flesh and blood incarnation, you see. They were not actually human. And the Ephesians believed that the goddess Artemis or the goddess Diana and the Diana or Artemis cult held sway over every vestige of life in Ephesus and the surrounding province. And I told you in the introduction to this book that the great temple of Artemis or Diana just outside downtown Ephesus was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And the cult of Diana or Artemis said that once in a while she made an appearance in a vision as if she took on the appearance of a human being. But she wasn't actually a human being. She didn't really take on a human body. You see what Paul is saying here? Jesus God the Son, the second person of the one true living God, He really did appear as a human being. He was fully divine and fully human, a real human body, a real human nature, to be the sin bearer on your behalf, to perform the work of redemption at the perfect time according to divine plan, to save us. The mediator had to be fully human as well as fully divine. The incarnation is very important. That's what Paul is saying. The incarnation of Christ is a true incarnation. The incarnation of Diana is not. God the Son truly arrived in a factual, actual incarnation. This is absolutely necessary for our redemption, folks. For Christ and His atoning work to offer redemption to humanity. The Savior, in order to be the proper mediator, He has got to be human. He has got to be divine. In His humanity, He has to be the perfect human being. The second Adam. The second representative head of the human race to give life to a new humanity. His redeemed people who He will claim at the end of the divine plan and who will populate the renovated universe in the future at the completion of the divine plan. That's very important truth proclamation here. And with that, Paul continues on. He prays that the Father of glory, or the glorious Father, our glorious Father God, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Now look carefully in your text that you have. I do not know if the word spirit there is capitalized. Sometimes it will be, sometimes it will not. I believe probably more Bible translations are coming around to capitalizing the word spirit there. There has been something of a debate from the original language. Is he speaking of the human spirit or is he speaking of the Holy Spirit? God, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who seals us as Paul told us last week. I hang my hat or pitch my tent in the camp of theologians or Greek scholars that believe we probably should capitalize this. I believe this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I pray that God the Father, our glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom or a spirit of wisdom by way of His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who I told you indwells you and seals you. The message from last week. So first of all, Paul prays for wisdom. And we should pray for wisdom for ourselves and for others as well. You want to know what to pray for other believers? Pray for wisdom. Here it is. Paul prays that the Father would give to the believer more of His wisdom by way of His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who seals us and indwells us is the source of wisdom and He gives us wisdom. He prays that the Spirit will give the Ephesian believers and you and I more wisdom. We all need wisdom. The Spirit is wisdom. He gives wisdom. 
Uh, you folks who have your ESV study Bible, I'll give you a sentence from their textual notes. The spirit of wisdom here refers to the Holy Spirit's secret working in Christians to give them insights, wisdom, into God's word and the saving knowledge of God, end quote. Paul has told us that the Holy Spirit is a seal upon and in believers. So here Paul tells us something else about the Holy Spirit who seals us. He is our source of wisdom. Pray for wisdom for yourself and for others. A gift from the Father for those who have new life by way of the Son and are indwelt and sealed by the Spirit. Application here, again, pray for the Spirit's wisdom working in other believers. And, Paul mentions, and revelation in the knowledge of Him. He wants more revelation of who and what God is and His plan for you. He wants that revealed to you. He wants certain knowledge of God revealed to you. That's what he's saying. That's how he's praying. And the word he uses for knowledge is a strong one, epinosis. The Greek word to know or knowledge is G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis. When you put the prefix epi, E-P-I, in front of there, it really ratchets up the intensity of the word. He's praying, epinosis, let me paraphrase, means super knowledge, super abundant knowledge, really faithful, true, factual, deep, profound knowledge. In the context of speaking of God, you could say transcendent knowledge of God. The revelation of God and about God. That's what he's saying here. Only the Holy Spirit of God can truly reveal this kind of a knowledge to human beings. We cannot grasp these things on our own. The Holy Spirit who sealed Christ's people, God's people, He provides this kind of transcendent knowledge, this kind of wisdom, this kind of understanding, thereby giving power to and for God's people. The Spirit reveals God, true knowledge of God. So we, Paul should be fervently praying for this. This work and ministry of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Pray that the Holy Spirit grants others and us a growing, true, deeper, factual, transcendent even, knowledge and understanding of the deep things of God. Divine revelation. The revealing of God to us. Let me read you a quote from Clinton Arnold in his commentary. I've been enjoying so much. He's one of those uh, wonderful Bible commentators who has such an incredible knowledge of first century um, Ephesus and why Paul is writing these things to these folks. And yet over 2,000 years, they're just as important and applicable to us. He writes, Pray that the Spirit impresses the truth of God's Word, divine revelation, the revealed truth of God, into the conscious reflections and heartfelt convictions, daily convictions of believers. Pray for the Spirit to thoroughly convince believers of God's glory and power in the deepest recesses of their souls. The work of the Spirit is also needed to reveal the full implications of the gospel, the full implications of the person and work of Christ for Christian belief and the Christian's daily life practice. End quote. You know what Paul's praying for here? He's praying for the life of the mind. Get in love and in touch with the life of the mind. The health and welfare of the life of the mind is of paramount importance. 
all through sacred scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, because the ancients believe, and it is true, that the mind is intimately connected to the heart and their concept of the heart, more on that shortly, and the soul. If you're going to feed your soul, you must feed your mind. If you want your heart to be right, and what that really means, you must see to the life of the mind. They're all intimately connected to give life and health to the soul. And we here in America, for some time, have tragically neglected the life of the mind. Tragically neglected the life of the mind. Church, for a lot of folks, is just a... It's just a bunch of warm and fuzzy emotional hooey with no real substance. No, don't neglect your heart, but you have to see to the life of the mind. It's of paramount importance. Paul is teaching it here. You want your heart to be right? The mind has to be right. And the mind and heart have to be right for the soul to be right. Do not neglect the life of your mind on a daily basis. Remember what the man says? To the Roman church in chapter 12, be renewed in the spirit of your mind every day that you live. Do not, do not neglect that. And that survey about Christian belief that was taken by Ligonier Ministries some time ago, some of you have read it or read parts of it, there's some distressing things in there. Not all, but some distressing things. And those distressing results tell me that Christians, so-called Christians, are The life of the mind is not right. The life of the mind just is not right. People are woefully ignorant of what this book actually says and proclaims and teaches. So that means this. Our churches are not teaching sacred scripture. An enormous problem. Let's correct that. By starting here at home, right? By starting here at home. Paul continues on with his prayer. He prays that, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now let's focus first of all on the word heart. It is cardia in the Greek, by which we come by the English word cardiac, meaning the heart. But cardia can mean the literal heart, the muscle in your chest. Cardia can mean something figuratively or metaphorically, and that's what Paul means here. Cardia, or the heart, to the ancient Greco-Romans, and it meant the same to the ancient Jews. It means this, this place here, in the core of your being, where the will, the intellect, the consciousness, the emotions, even the spirit or the soul, the spiritual life dwells in the person where the mind and the heart and the soul are connected with the body. That's what they mean by the heart. It is the very core of your being. So that's what Paul is saying. That's what he's praying for, and that's what we should pray for others. I pray that the very core of your being, your heart, your soul, the intellect, the emotions, everything may be enlightened, may be illuminated, may be flooded with light, the light of the God who is light and the source of all light. Paul is praying that as we receive wisdom from the Holy Spirit, our heart, and what that means to the ancients, will be illuminated, will be enlightened. He prays that the mind and heart may be illuminated or lightened for the sake of the soul, connected to the soul, giving life to the soul. Eyes of the... You like that expression? It's a pretty expression. The eyes of the heart 
may be enlightened or illuminate. Paul may have come up with this. Paul may have coined this phrase himself. It's a very unique expression. This is the only place where it's found in the New Testament. And as far as I know, I don't believe this phrase, eyes of the heart, appears in Greco-Roman literature of the time outside of the Bible. So some Bible scholars believe that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to coin this phrase. The eyes of the core of your being may be flooded with light, the light of God. The word he uses for enlightened or illumined is fotizo. Sound familiar? Photo? Photography? From fotizo, meaning having to deal with light. Fotizo enlightened means to shine light, to shed rays of light, to give light, literally and figuratively. Here, figuratively, spiritual light. Fotizo means spiritual light, light of the heart, light of the soul, light of God, provided by God, about God. Paul prays that God, by way of His Spirit, would give Ephesian believers illumination in the core of their being for the life and health and welfare of the mind, the heart, and the soul. So should you and I always be praying for one another without ceasing. A scripturally inspired prayer request. Now, don't think that this is unique to the New Testament. It is not. This is found in the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament concept. In the Old Testament, for the Old Covenant people, the Jews, the heart was also for them a metaphor for the seat or the home of a person's will, intellect, and their spiritual life. So Paul is therefore praying that God will provide deep and profound insight into the very nature and character of his own person, his own being, his plan that he has set in motion, his will and his plan for all believers. What were we like before our conversion? Were we people of light? Absolutely not. Before our conversion, before the new birth, we were spiritually dead. That means darkness. We were creatures of spiritual darkness. But now that we are believers, we are alive in the light. Therefore, believers are to be illumined and enlightened. Believers are enlightened so that, as Paul writes, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. I want you to have a deeper transcendent knowledge and wisdom and insight by way of the Spirit about this hope in His divine plan, the hope of His calling you from before He spoke the universe into being so that you may know what is the hope of His calling. So before our new birth, we were people who had no hope. You have to take pity on some of these unbelievers. You have to take pity on all unbelievers. I know as evil and as malicious and vicious as they can be, and the vicious hatred of and towards Christ and His people in this country, it's getting worse. But you do have to pity these people. They are in total, utter darkness. Dead souls. And at the end of the day, in spite of all of their huff and all of their guff, they have no hope whatsoever. None. They need light. They need life. They need true knowledge. They need hope. You have hope. You have hope. You have the words. You have the knowledge. You have the answers. You have the hope. They do not. Try to give them hope. The words of life and light. 
Before our new birth, we were people who had no hope. Believers born of God are now enlightened people of hope because they have been called, we have been called by God. Remember from the benediction, predestined from before the world's foundation, part of God's revealed plan, called in Christ, sealed with His Spirit, therein lies your hope. The hope believers have and the hope believers enjoy is a result of the fact that God Almighty has called you. That's what Paul means by the hope of His calling. Paul prays that believers may have a full awareness of all of the implications of what it means to be called by God, to be part of a plan from the mind and heart of God from before the creation of the world. May God enlighten us to fully grasp what all of this means, what all of the inspired teaching of this letter means, what all the inspired teaching of the New Testament and Old Testament, sacred scripture means means for all believers. Put this truth to work in your life. Believers are to have absolute confidence, absolute assurance about their, if I may use this word, destiny. About your final and eternal destiny because you have been called by God, part of His divine plan, all wrapped up and all summed up in Christ, as Paul said in the benediction earlier. That is hope. That is hope that is anchored in absolute fact and absolute reality. Your destiny in Christ is just as sure as a fact as the weather we're having outside today is a fact. It's not a vague, fuzzy, oh, I hope one day this may or may not take place. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is absolute fact, absolute reality from He who is the source of absolute reality. So continuing on, now Paul includes in his prayer, he prays that Ephesian believers, all believers may know, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, or his inheritance of the saints. Or you could translate that as, the riches of his glorious inheritance in or of the saints. Or allow me to paraphrase it this way, God's inheritance of his saints is rich and full of glory. That's what Paul is saying. Now, pardon me, i got to bit ahead of myself. I was going to ask you a question first. What is Paul saying here exactly? Whose inheritance is he speaking of exactly? Is it the believer's inheritance, as in the believer's inheritance of living in God's eternal kingdom, or does he mean God's inheritance? That is, God inheriting or taking up full possession or claim of his people at the end of the divine plan, his saints, his believers. I believe it's God's inheritance of his saints. God's inheritance of His saints is rich and full of glory. That's what Paul is saying. God's full possession of His redeemed people in the eternal kingdom. That's going to happen when Christ returns, and it's all summed up in Him, the wrapping up of the divine plan. Okay? And remember, the reason I think that's a correct interpretation, because remember what Paul just taught us at the end of his benediction in verse 14. Let's go back to verse 14 for a second. The Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, that's our life in the eternal kingdom, yes, but with what? With a view to the redemption of God's own possession, God's own inheritance of God's own possession, Christian believers, to the praise of His glory. So I believe this here as well is a reference to God's inheriting His people. God's taking full possession of His saints in the Greek, hagioi, the holy ones made holy by the work of Christ, His possession of His people in His eternal kingdom. 
And this possession is what John describes in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the consummation of the divine plan. When, as Paul told us last week, all things are summed up in Christ, verse 10. So God's own inheritance, His heritage, according to the divine plan, it's you. It's me. The saints themselves. Christian believers, His redeemed people. His predestined people He will consummately gain and claim once and for all in the wealth and glory of the new creation. Paul wants you to know more about that. To have a greater understanding of that. What in the world all of that means? What are the implications of all of that? I love the rich language that he uses. Riches of the glory. The word he uses for riches is plautos. That's the most intense word for wealth in the Koine Greek language. It means extravagant, outlandish, unbelievable, incomprehensible wealth. Strongest word for wealth in the Greek. The glory... Word he uses for glory is again doxa, by which we come by the English word doxology, praise and worship. But doxa means this in this context. The magnificence and transcendent greatness and beauty of God. That glory of God. In other words, you know what Paul is saying? When God inherits His saints, His redeemed holy ones, the glory, the beauty, the transcendent magnificence of that time will be outlandishly, outrageously, unbelievably rich and wealthy in all ways beyond your ability to imagine. That is your eternal destiny in Christ, and that's what he wants you to know more of. Now to conclude for the day, first half of verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Or the ESV translates this beginning of verse 19 as, What is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? So Paul prays that you, and we should pray this for one another, pray that your fellow Christian believers have a growing awareness of the immeasurable greatness of the power of God towards those of us who believe. So this request to God and Paul's prayer is simply, that God will reveal to these Ephesian believers, to all believers, a full understanding, awareness, appreciation of the incomparably great power of God that is working in your life and over and through your life. Paul is very emphatic about this. Um, you understand this enough in most of the English translations, but it's, it's all the more apparent in the original Greek. Um, in describing the power of God here, he almost goes over the top. He almost goes to an extreme. In the original language, he just piles one on top of the other. Power words, power words, power words. Greatness, the immeasurable greatness, the surpassing greatness, the unbelievable greatness, the power of God. He really piles it on here. Almost to an extreme as a writer. Why is he doing that? He wants to highlight the omnipotent vastness of God's power that is unleashed on behalf of believers in Christ, you and I, who are part of this divine plan. This is the almost incomprehensible power of God's divine plan in Christ over all creation. The word for surpassing greatness, surpassing, is hyperbalon. It's a great word. Uh, you can translate it as incredible, immeasurable, 
surpassing, inconceivable. I mean, it's a great rich word to describe God's omnipotent power, the greatest possible powers, the greatest power that you can possibly imagine, and then some. That's what Paul is saying. God's power, the word for power, is dunamis or dynamis. Sound familiar? The word by which we come by the English word dynamite. That's power. None greater. This is the power unleashed on behalf of those who believe. Here is where your hope and your confidence and your assurance lies. The greatest power possible in and over the universe is the power that's over you and that's in you and working through you, making you a part of the divine plan. His redeemed, called, predestined people. There's your hope, folks. There's your confidence in the omnipotent power of God. Let me conclude today with a few thoughts from Dr. S. M. Bao in his commentary. Quote, While this language of power in verse 19, Paul's extravagant focus on God's power in behalf of believers in Christ and of Christ's supreme place over the cosmos and in His church is set over against the preoccupation with unseen supernatural forces manipulated through magic practices and the occult in antiquity in ancient times and especially in Ephesus, the people to whom he is writing. It is not difficult for people in many parts of the modern world to understand this as well, since magic and occult practices persist to this day. Ephesian converts to Christ whose whole lives have been steeped in attempts to avoid or manipulate or placate unseen hostile spiritual powers, these people could not easily and quickly shake off these old beliefs and patterns of thought. So Paul looks to the one true living God in prayer that his fellow Christians in Ephesus and elsewhere would be convinced absolutely of the absolute truth of God's supremacy, Christ's supremacy over any and all supposed spiritual or demonic competitor in this universe. End quote. God's power in and through His divine plan, through Christ, according to Paul, here in this prayer, is the greatest transcendent power at work in this universe. There is none other in comparison. None other. This is the power behind the divine plan. This is the power that spoke the divine plan into motion. This is the power that called you and gave you new life and is working in you and through you now. That divine plan humming right along according to schedule until it is all wrapped up at the return of the great king and a new age then begins. All by that power. This is the power at work in behalf of those in Christ. So like Paul, let us all pray that we may be given a full and profound and deeper knowledge and understanding of these ultimate realities of life that the Apostle proclaims in this prayer. Next week, 
we will complete his wonderful prayer for the Ephesians and for you and I. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and your mercy and your graciousness and your power for all of your divine attributes to be clearly seen in the created universe and in your divine plan for and in and through your creation, your universe. And thank you for thinking of us, making us part of the blueprint, the divine plan in the mind of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the universe was spoken into being by fiat of the power of the one true living God that Paul describes here in this prayer. Oh, Lord God Almighty, in the name of Jesus, give your believing, redeemed people this knowledge, this wisdom, this gift of the Holy Spirit that Paul is praying for, to understand the deep things which are of you, the ultimate realities of life that all of us will be confronted with. And bless us, O Lord, by way of the truth of your word and the presence of your Spirit as we conclude and come to the Lord Jesus' table to commemorate the perfect work of the divine Son in the divine plan to draw us into the divine plan. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. To prepare for the Lord's table,